From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Well, we're a week away from Education Week, but this is still a really busy week of education policy at the State House. And we saw some some hot button issues uh, rising to the surface, including one, well, we've seen it two years in a row, now we're seeing it for the third time. You covered it on Wednesday, another bill uh, pertaining to guns. Yeah, another guns on campus bill. This came out um, earlier in the week out of the House State Affairs Committee. Representative Chad Christensen, who's a Republican from Iona, which is kind of in the Idaho Falls area over there Mm -hmm. in eastern Idaho, uh, pushing a new bill, uh, new for this session, and what it would do is it would allow anybody with an enhanced concealed carry permit to carry uh, a firearm, to carry a gun concealed on school district property. And um, yeah, and, and so that was introduced by House State Affairs earlier this week. Uh, Representative Christensen said that his intention is this would apply to um, to staff members like teachers, but even bus drivers. And it was also his intention that uh, employees with the enhanced concealed carry permit would be able to travel from one district to another. The example they gave in the hearing uh, was traveling from a basketball game. Uh, maybe your team, your school is uh, leaving school and going to a road game in another district. Uh, the mm-hmm. employees and the bus driver would be able to carry if they had that enhanced concealed carry permit. One of the big things about this bill is that current Idaho law already allows Uh, school districts and school boards to make decisions about uh, whether teachers can be armed. And we have seen several school districts in Idaho really over the last five years uh, adopt some of these policies where they do allow teachers to be armed. And so Idaho law right now allows districts to make that decision at the local level. One thing that would be different with this new bill, should it pass, is that employees would be able to carry that concealed weapon with that enhanced permit regardless of whether the local school district allows it or not. And they're saying the state law yeah. would supersede that. It would also and, require and, and them... Also, I don't want to go, and before we get away from that, yeah. because and I don't mean to interrupt, but I think it's a really important point. You covered the hearing Wednesday, but as I read your coverage, it seemed very clear that uh, Christensen is, uh, is directing this legislation at some school districts that have been, you know, resistant to the idea of allowing uh, school staff to carry. He mentioned Boise in particular, but you've got districts uh, such as Boise and maybe more urban districts that are that want to leave the enforcement aspect of uh, school safety to the SROs. And you know, I think what he's trying to do here is trying to allow, you know, allow school staff to basically um, you know, go around the trustees who right now have to approve any kind of uh, carry on campus. That's a really good point, Kevin, and I'm glad you jumped in there. That's exactly right. Uh, Representative Christensen actually mentioned Boise by name. He said, I want the Boise area schools, I want other area schools, I want their employees to have this opportunity if they don't already have it right now. So you're exactly right. Uh, there are districts that have gone on the record uh, and have considered it and said, you know, hey, we, we would rather have uh, local law enforcement. Uh, be the ones to handle the response. We don't want uh, to enact a board policy or a district policy that would allow our teachers to carry firearms. And so that has been addressed at the local level. This would go around that. You're absolutely right. One of the other things that it would do is it would require 
schools to take down uh, gun-free school uh, signs, right. which you might see f- around from time to time. It Yeah, it's kind of a, a complicated bill. There's also sort of a, a protection from lawsuits clause at the very end of the bill. Um, and that was something that gave a couple of members of the committee a little bit of heartburn. So it was a bill that was actually amended on the fly during its introductory hearing. Uh, usually that's not considered best legislative practices, um, but they did it. And so now that bill is on the way. But we've seen really, really similar versions of bills like this in the right. past. Under a previous chairman, uh, they did not receive a hearing to advance, but House State Affairs Committee Chairman Representative Brent Crane, a Republican from Nampa, uh, might be more open to it. Uh, so we'll see. This has kind of had, as you mentioned, it's kind of had a checkered past legislatively. I mean, 2019, I think, was when uh, Christensen tried to bring this bill through House State Affairs. Uh, Stephen Harris, the chairman at the time, did not give it a full hearing. The proponents tried a similar bill on the Senate side last year, and they did get a hearing in Senate State Affairs, but it was voted down in committee. So, you know, the third time around for this proposal or something very similar to it. Yeah, it's interesting. Representative Christensen is an outspoken um, legislator, uh, outspoken on Second Amendment issues, but he's actually openly a member of a far-right militia group called the Oath Keepers. Um, mm-hmm. And he's been handling a lot of, well, I don't know if handling, but he, he's been uh, involved with a lot of gun legislation since his time in office over the last uh, maybe three sessions or something like that. Um, but anyways, we have full coverage on that one earlier in the week. What were you going to say there, Kevin? No, I was going to say we'll, we'll be watching to see if this does get a full hearing in House State Affairs, which was actually probably the most interesting committee in the legislature this week as far as uh, education legislation. Uh, uh, you and I were both spending some time watching House State Affairs this week because not just the guns on campus bill, but a couple of other bills. And, and you were watching this morning. Yeah, here we go again. Another bill on um, on public gatherings. Yeah, brand new legislation introduced this morning on Friday, February 5th, just a not long ago at all, but House State Affairs introduced a brand new resolution that is designed to repeal the limits on crowds and gathering sizes uh, that are a part of the state's coronavirus pandemic reopening plan. Again, this one is being pushed uh, by Chairman uh, Brent Crane uh, and Representative Barbara Ehart, Idaho Falls Republican. They also pushed a resolution earlier this year, uh, House Concurrent Resolution 2, I guess, in inside baseball legislative lingo, that would be the father of this new um, mm-hmm, yeah. resolution uh, to kind of sketch out the family tree for you there. But to get back on track, um, this is kind of part of the showdown that we've seen all year, right, Kevin, about the response to the coronavirus pandemic. But more specifically than that, a showdown over separation of powers. So this new resolution would be designed to repeal the cap on gatherings and crowd sizes. And that's been a topic that's been in the news all week. Earlier this week, Governor Brad Little moved the state into stage three, which is the next stage of the state's reopening plan. In the process, that lifted the size of gatherings, the limit on gatherings from a limit of 10 uh, to up to 50 now. But that doesn't apply to high school sports events or youth sport events because late in January, uh, Governor Little and the State Board of Education allow- revised those athletics policies to allow gyms to fill capacity to 40%. Right. 
So that's where things stand entering Friday. Mm-hmm. But this new resolution is really a response to the Idaho High School Activities Association. Uh, Chairman Crane said that he contacted the IHSAA about the upcoming girls' district uh, tournaments that are going to be coming mm-hmm. up and starting shortly. And he asked about their plans for crowd sizes. And they talked to him about their plans. And he said that wasn't even close to 40% of what the governor and the state board of education was allowing. And so in his introductory hearing this morning on Friday, he said, I told the IHS AA that we were going to be bringing brand new legislation in the morning to address this uh, because they did not go up to allow the full 40% for the district tournament and then for the upcoming state tournament. And Representative Barbara Ehart was a co-sponsor uh, of this. The committee introduced this bill, but took it one step further, Kevin. They put it on a fast track, and so technically what that means is they sent it straight to the House floor, straight to the second reading calendar, so that's going to bypass what would be a traditional public hearing process that you would see in committee, and that could set that resolution up for a vote on the House floor very early next week. Right, and it sounds like perhaps what uh, is driving the accelerated time frame is you've got these uh, state tournaments coming up. Uh, I want to say sometime later this month, or yeah. you know, in the next couple of weeks. Yep. So, it, it, Representative Crane obviously has uh, a bone to pick with the, the High School Activities Association, which is not a state agency; it's kind of a, an outside entity. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's probably driving a little bit of the timetable. But, you know, again, we've seen the House take up a very similar resolution earlier this year. Yep. Um, you know, and now it looks like we'll have another one on the House floor. That first one never did co- come up in the Senate because they backed off. As you mentioned, uh, the legislature, you know, they stood down after Little and the state board decided to increase crowd attendance. I mean, this has been, you know, who, who knew we would spend this much time this legislative session on legislation on high school crowd attendance, but this has become uh, a really contentious issue. And for Brent Crane, it's become maybe his, uh, you know, his top legislative priority. Uh, yeah, I think it's his signature Ehart represent uh, his signature issue. Representative Ehart as well uh, is involved with this one. I don't think we've really ever covered high school sports or youth sports really to any extent in the first eight years that Idaho Education News was around. In the last six months, it's something we cover regularly. And I'm not talking about game coverage, but I'm talking about the policy uh, behind these decisions on whether sports can be allowed, what what kind of capacity we're going to have, what's the situation with spectators. And so it's really been elevated to the forefront. Uh, people feel strongly on all sides of the issue and uh, really starting to dominate uh, the legislative session. But it wasn't the only interesting hearing in the House State Affairs Committee, which has long been a favorite committee of mine, Kevin, going back years and years and years. Uh, Interesting committee to watch for sure. You had a hearing earlier this week. We both were involved in it, really. Uh, But you caught a discussion about uh, some legislation that has to do with renaming monuments and the process for renaming schools that would be named after historic figures. Uh, We have seen this come up in the past. What was the legislation about? What would it do? And where did the discussion go? Okay, so this is, uh, you know, now we complete the trifecta from House State Affairs here. So on Wednesday, House State Affairs approved a rewritten version of a bill uh, sponsored by, and I'm going to 
try to get his name right. He's a new freshman legislator, Doug Akunowitz. Akunowitz, from, yeah. From North Idaho. His proposal would do exactly what you said. It would, would, would require the legislature to approve any changes in the name of a public facility, such as a school that's been named for a historical figure. That's the education access. It would also require the legislature to approve the removal of any monuments or statues, um, you know, it's, you know, which has been a, a controversial issue, a hot button issue in other states. It hasn't really come up in Idaho to this point. This bill, uh, like I said, the education nexus, and this is where uh, the Idaho School Boards Association has gotten involved, just saying, you know, that it's not practical for the state legislature to be involved in the decisions about renaming schools or public facilities and saying that that really should be a decision that should rest with locally elected trustees. Um, that argument didn't uh, fly with State Affairs Committee. The, the, the bill passed and now is headed to the House floor. We expect a vote on that maybe early next week. Yeah, really felt like um, here we are closing out the fourth week of the legislative session, a week removed, as you said, from Education Week. Uh, things are picking up. We're starting to see more education-related bills. Uh, but one of the dominant factors, the session, that showdown over separation of powers about how we're going to respond or if we're going to respond uh, with health and safety protocols to the coronavirus pandemic continues to dominate the landscape and the agenda every day. Multiple hearings, multiple bills, uh, really been the focal point uh, as we wrap up the first four weeks. Yeah, and you know, you know we will see now how these uh, how these pieces of legislation move forward. I mean, you know. The new gatherings resolution just shows how much uh, tension there is right now in the legislature with regards to coronavirus response. The frustration, in this case, with I with High School Activities Association, yeah. but that frustration with the governor and that frustration with uh, you know with the state board over you know over gatherings and uh, attendance at school events. That's still you know I, I think that's still kind of in the in the background i think that's kind of still in in, in people's memories yeah be interesting to see how they resolve it given that uh, house education committee chairman lance Klaus said we're looking to adjourn the legislative session by may or thereabouts so they, they got to bring it to a close <laughs> at some point right <laughs> he was trying to be funny <laughs> it yeah. didn't sound funny to me yeah yeah the legislative session going to may I've seen it before. I, I'm not looking forward to ever seeing it again. No, traditionally they would uh, adjourn in like late March or very early April, right? But uh, a, a lot more that I want to get to on today's show. Uh, Kevin, we always kind of highlight the Thursday analysis piece that you do, which is always going to be available at the homepage, which is www.idahoednews.org. You really took a closer look at the funding picture and how complicated it's getting, especially with this second wave of brand new federal coronavirus emergency stimulus funds funding that's going to be making its way into the state of Idaho. A lot of that is earmarked for schools, both K-12 and higher education. But Kevin, you found that there's going to be a lot of discretion and wide latitude and how the money can be spent, and we're just starting to get a sense of how complicated it is. Right. It is a, a flood of money. Uh, 
probably when you get right down to it, more money with more spending latitude in this new coronavirus stimulus law than we saw back in March with the passage of the CARES Act. I mean, we've been talking about the CARES Act probably almost every podcast since March because the the tentacles of the CARES Act and and CARES Act funding has been such a recurring theme in education policy and education politics and and the the tension between the legislature and the the governor's office. Uh, That's been a nine-month story. And But as started to hear more talk about the new stimulus law, I was kind of struck by the numbers that I was starting to hear. And it was kind of like, okay, hold on a second. We have to kind of take a step back and and talk about this. So a couple of the numbers that uh, are really salient that I really want to, you know, drill into to kind of set the stage here. CARES Act 1, and you wrote extensively about the CARES Act last year. Yeah provided school districts about $43 million in what I would describe as direct aid. This money goes straight to the school districts and the charter is based on their Title I enrollment. And it comes with some strings attached, but not as many strings attached. So there's $43 million last year from the CARES Act. It's not all of the CARES Act money no. that went to public schools by any stretch, but that's the that's kind of the direct aid that's a little bit more discretionary funding for the districts. This time around, districts and charters are going to get $176 million of similar funding with a lot of latitude in how how it can be spent. I mean, there are like 15 categories that it has to fall into, all versions of uses to offset costs related to COVID-19. And to give give our listeners an idea of how much $176 million is – that's more than both you and I made together last year for putting out this podcast, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, you know, not by much, but yes, definitely <laughs> is more. And, but it is four times as much money in this kind of direct direct aid for schools with, you know, extremely wide latitude in how they spend it. You know, yes, it's all going to be COVID related, but the language is, is loose enough that uh, districts are going to have a lot of you know, different ways to spend the money, and they have three years to spend the money. They don't have to spend it until the end of the federal budget year 2023. So I think it may be a long process. I was trying to watch this money and see how it uh, how it gets used. Higher education is getting $72 million, which is more than they got uh, the first time around with CARES Act. $72 million, and that's for the eight public institutions. And $18 million of that, so a quarter of that, is going to basically go directly to students. Um, we saw this with the CARES Act as well. Uh, direct student aid designed to help help kids, help college students offset you know, expenses that they've incurred due to COVID-19. So you have that direct student aid component, but more money for the colleges and universities themselves to spend, again, on you know COVID-related expenses. They can also use it now to offset revenue losses stemming from COVID, you know, you know, canceled room and board contracts, canceled campus events or sporting events, they can offset those revenue losses as well. So a lot of different ways to, to use this money. And it's right in the middle of the debate over state funding for public schools and higher education. And, you know, anyways, I'm just really going to be interested to see to what degree does this money, this flood of federal money, affect the debate over state funding for for K twelve and higher ed. I think I think it is really interesting, Kevin. And we always, I've always sorted favoring P- 
paying more attention and providing more scrutiny to the state funding um, and, and, and tracking that. Um, but this is going to become really interesting with this influx of federal money. And I think I've already started to see it a little bit last week in Education Week and a little bit this week where some legislators, um, they're kind of perking up and saying, okay, I'm, I'm curious about where this money has gone and, and, and what it's been spent on and what they've done with these allocations. I've seen a couple of different questions along those lines in a couple of different committees over the last couple of weeks. And one of the things I really kind of stumbled on along the way this week, and I heard this in a House Education Committee hearing earlier this week and, and worked it into the story on Thursday, is that Go back to that $43 million that we were talking about for K-12. That's the direct aid from CARES Act yeah. for, for school districts and charters. Only a fraction of that money has been spent so far. Uh, I think the number was about $8 million and change yep. has been spent so far by the districts and charters. So about a, you know, about a fifth of the money has been, you know, has been drawn down out of those accounts. So there's still a lot of that money still sitting, you know, waiting for districts and charters to spend it. And they have until 2022 to spend that. So they've got, you know, the better part of two years to draw down their share of that money. But I was really kind of surprised by that. I was surprised at how, you know, some districts are really kind of holding off. Uh, West Ada was a good example. West Ada was um, a good example, yeah. You know, they have not spent any of their money uh, from CARES Act 1, and I think they were getting somewhere between 3 and $4 million. I don't have the money, uh, the numbers right in front of me. And right now they're still, they're working on, on looking at their options for what they're going to wind up doing with the, the $14 million that they stand to get now under the new stimulus law, that they're still trying to, they're looking at their options and are trying to make sure that what they do is uh, in compliance with the federal law. So, you know, that's the biggest district in the state, uh, really kind of wrestling with the mechanics and the logistics and the, the legalities of how to spend this money. So if a West Ada, you know, is struggling with the logistics, I, I can imagine that this is probably a, a complicated issue, even more so for some of the smaller districts and charters around the state that have, you know, smaller staff, smaller administrative staff, administrators who are, you know, federal programs director and, you know, a couple of other, a uh, couple of other titles. Uh, so maybe it's not surprising that some of these districts and charters are, are going slow with, with how to spend the money. I was just surprised at how little has been spent at this point. We see that all the time in our in our smaller districts and our remote districts, all the different hats that employees wear, where, yeah, the finance director might be doing uh, several different things. But we talked, Kevin, just before we turned on the microphone about how complicated this is. On the one hand, it's a good problem to have uh, on, on its face with an influx of, of, of federal money. Um, you know. But uh, we talked about how complicated it is. And without even getting into the calculations and the dollars and the cents, just looking at it um, from a nature of one-time spending, how, how that makes things difficult. Because it makes it tough to sign on to a long-term contract or or make these long-term commitments based on all this one-time money. If you use the money to go out and hire new teachers this year, after the source of funding dry, dries up, you either have to find a different way to pay them or, or do something different, right? But that's something that can really right. make it complicated, and that was what was responsible for one of the longest legislative sessions in state history um, was at a previous um, administration's plans to have federal stimulus money come in, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this can really kind of gum up the works legislatively because, as you say, this is one time money. I mean, 
you know, I drew the analogy. I mean, the lead of the story was, mm -hmm. was pretty self-evident where I said, look, you know, we all got 600 bucks, uh, school districts and, and higher education got a quarter of a billion dollars. But it is, it is an analogy though, because that 600 bucks that I got, that you got, you know, probably not a good idea to take that 600 bucks and say, I'm going to buy a $20,000 car right? and, and finance $20,000 car. Uh, spoiler alert. That's not what uh, I did with the, uh, with, with, my 600 and you know that's not what we did as a you know as a you know my wife and i with with our 1200 so it's the same deal with with school districts and, and colleges and universities if you if you build a program if you start a program using this one-time federal money then you're you're kind of wagering that you're going to find a way to continue to pay for it down the road when the money from Uncle Sam dries up i, I had a chance in doing this story to talk to the nampa school district and talk to their finance director and the trustees in Nampa haven't figured out how they want to spend the money from the new law. So it's a little bit premature. But one of the things that uh, they're brainstorming about, one of the options that they're thinking about is trying to do you know, summer school uh, for at-risk students. Sort of an add-on to what Governor Little wants to do with the summer reading program. But yeah. this would be uh, not just early reading. It would be for, you know, for kids beyond K through 3 and instruction beyond uh, reading and literacy. You know, and you know, it acknowledges and it recognizes what, what AMP is talking about here that there are a lot of learning gaps right now because of the pandemic. There are a lot of uh, there's a lot of learning loss going on, and it's not just in K three and it's not just in reading. So, a summer reading program, you know, could address a lot of those learning gaps, you know, in you know, across the the, the K twelve system in Nampa and. You know, but the flip side is a couple of years down the road, if you've established this program and you put some money into it and you, you, you've hired some people to, uh, you know, to teach it, you've come up with a plan to, to staff it, well, then you're going to have to pay for it in a couple of years if you want to keep it going. So you know, that's, a, that's a real concern for Nampa uh, and districts uh, across the state and charters across the state. When I talked to Wendy Horman, who's kind of our go-to source on a lot of education budget issues, she expressed similar concerns. It's like, well, we've got all this money coming in, but if we start to, as a legislature, look at it and say, wow, we got you know, you know, $176 million going to the school districts, we can whittle away at some of these education line item budgets, whether it's professional development or uh, classroom technology. Take your pick of line items. Her concern is, well, if we whittle away at those line items now and we need to still have that funding in in place earmarked a couple of years down the road, we're going to come up with it all over again. And that's, uh, you know, that's not necessarily something that would happen. So, you know, she used, and you know, you, you've heard it before. You've heard yeah, Scott yeah, Bedke yeah. use this analogy yeah. before. It's one of, it's one of, you know, Scott Bedke's favorite Bedkeyisms. you know, is talking about, well, it's, you know, in the ranching world, it's not the bad years that kill you. It's the good years that kill you. And, you know, when I talked to Horman about the, um, the money for, um, you know, the federal money, she invoked that, that Bedkeyism that, you know, when you've got good, you know, good times, and it's weird that they we're talking about good times budget-wise uh, budget at the state house, but it's kind of the case here in the middle of this pandemic. Yeah. If you overspend and overcommit during the good times, and then you have to figure out how to cover it in the bad times, that's how you get yourself in trouble. And, and, and you know, what's what's more Idaho legislature than, uh, than a ranching analogy, uh, you know, applied to public policy, right? Well, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been listening to like a House floor debate and heard complicated policy decisions 
<laughs> explained by using some ranching analogy or trying to, you know, touch the cow's tail or something like that without <laughs> creating a mess. And so it is something that we get a lot oh, of, right? I forgot the touch the cow's tail analogy. Oh, man. I will and never. I, and I could have lived without remembering it all over again. Wow. I will never uh, forget about that little <laughs> trick. I mean, even earlier this week, uh, Representative House Majority Leader Mike Moyle was talking about uh, a bill that he was introducing on ballot harvesting. And he said the idea came uh, after talking to a neighboring farmer uh, out of the ditch at the edge of his uh, peppermint field or whatever. So it, <laughs> it, it, it creeps into the discourse quite a, a bit. But, but that was a pretty busy week, Kevin. It's really starting to pick up, I think. It, it was a busy week at the ranch we like to call the Idaho legislature, but uh, and it will be busy next week. I mean, we're already looking at the the agendas and uh, a piece that we've been watching for from uh, Sherry Barra is going to come up on Monday. Uh, you'll be there at House Education for that as the school opening issue uh, takes center stage. Yep, yep, we'll be looking for that. Uh, that's something that Superintendent Ibarra talked about. Before the session, she promised it was coming uh, when she gave her recent budget proposal, and it's going to be up for introduction in the House Education Committee. We'll have full coverage of what the bill does and what the reaction is from legislators, and that will just kick us off. It's going to be an even busier week uh, next week, but uh, you know, I have a feeling it's going to stay busy until uh, May or June or whenever it is that uh, Chairman Clow thinks we'll be able to adjourn, right? Yeah, yeah, I think it's going to be uh, let's hope not May, May or June. That's you know, no. that, that's the we kid. Yeah, we no that that's uh, we should have a trigger warning when we uh, make jokes about the legislature being in town until May and May or June. But another busy week uh, on our website and a lot of stuff to get to. We talked about school opening. Um, I wrote really uh, a blog about a new Boise State University survey about where Idahoans stand on school reopening issues and some, some partisan divides there. So, Interesting stuff there, so you'll want to look at that on the, on the blog. We'll have the latest on coronavirus case numbers, the latest on the vaccine rollout that's affecting schools, and much, much more. Uh, so do check in at idahoednews.org daily and see what's uh, what's current. Yep, absolutely. I had another update on the Master Educator Premium situation. It's going to be another few weeks, uh, the State Board of Education says, for those 600, I want to say 650 or so teachers who have applied for that $4,000 a year bonus. Uh, that's been a long delayed program. Why does that all sound vaguely familiar? Yeah, we've, we've been talking about it since August. Uh, it's been a long delayed program. Uh, they hope to wrap it up in the next few weeks. They're basically onto the tiebreaker round of evaluation. So the process is nearing the finish line. I, I know though, the, for those hundreds of teachers, um, they expected they would have already had their money. So we'll keep an eye on that story and more. We always appreciate our readers and our listeners join us. We have a lot of fun breaking down this ever-complicated intersection of education policy and education politics. Have a good weekend. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Stay safe and have a good week. <laughs>